Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. I've got it for purpose and, and, and appreciate getting to uh, hang out and tell stories and listen to other people tell stories and uh, appreciate that it may be uh, everything's not always like the door, but it's not the worst one. Appalachia Meets World, podcast about place perspective but always Appalachian and don't forget Will tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our Appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern Kentucky check them out Appalachian meets world we're back it's Will and Neil what up big Willie I want to know how was the fourth (laughs) I knew that question was coming, and I'm happy to lead off with it because it was spectacular in one word. They say you usually lose people after 18 minutes. We went 22 minutes of nothing but pure, nonstop, light the sky on fire fireworks. Six people lighting at the same time, as fast as you can go. 22 minutes wow that is impressive so it takes it took six of you to light all the fireworks. i'm not i love to watch fireworks but i've never been the one setting them off how's that how's that work uh well you gotta have a plan when you're doing like a complete show make sure all six of you are on the same page get things in order before you ever start it's important to also make sure that all of the wicks are facing one direction so you don't have to look for them and everybody knows where they are. But if you can do that and get set up, and get your team on the same page, you know, you can go rapid fire. As long as nobody minds a loud bang in their ear. You are awful close to the fireworks when they're going off. That, that's actually quite impressive. I, I know you, you like to talk about plans and everyone has one to get punched in the face. So nothing has ever punched you in the face during this fireworks plan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This year was smooth. Last year, uh, one of our guys got shot in the shoulder, left a scar. He lived to tell about it, Uh, but you do have to be careful. Flat surface is important. We always use cinder blocks and boards so we can have stuff, uh, good things holding down our our artillery shell holders. So, But, yeah, proper preparation leads to a good game, Will. If everyone walks away with all their digits, it's probably a success, right? Yeah, this year was definitely a success. Right before, I spent about 20, 25 minutes getting everything set up and ready to go and while the sun was still out. And then right before it got dark, I looked over at the people that were here, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but there was every bit of 75 to 100 people at my house. I'm telling you, you need to start charging. <laughs> yeah, I know for real. It was uh, it was awesome. I'm happy to do it. Fun, fun for the neighborhood. One other celebration since you are the chicken guy, 
I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you, yesterday apparently was National Fried Chicken Day. One, wow. did you know that? And two, did you celebrate? No, and sort of. <laughs> if you mean, did I eat chicken yesterday in celebration? Of course I did. It was a day that didn't been why. But did I know? Uh, no, I can't lie. I did not know that it was National Fried Chicken Day. I had no idea either. It popped up on my feed. National Fried Chicken Day. I, I celebrated with some fried chicken. <laughs> but I don't know how you else you celebrate. After the fact, after you knew it was Fried Chicken Day? Yeah. Okay. After I knew, I assumed that I had to after I found out, right? Naturally. Was it KFC? It was not. That was <laughs> what's your favorite? What's your favorite fried chicken? Golly, put me on the spot. You know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> I do. I just wanted to hear it. And it is the best. Bojangles fried chicken is, is better than KFC. I said it, Appalachia. I remember back in the day, for some reason, I used to like Lee's famous recipe. Yeah, Lee's is okay. It's not Bojangles quality. I'll take your word for it that Bojangles is the best. I don't know. That was our national news segment, I guess, National Fried Chicken Day. But do you have any app news for us? I got a little bit of app news. You know, we've been talking about media last week. We're talking about it again this week. Caught, talk about it for a couple of episodes, media in Appalachia. We have a good guest on today, so I'll be quick with the app news. But I saw that the Appalachian Triangle, which I think we mentioned before, it received $350,000 from the state of Kentucky to market the area as a tourist destination. I mentioned that because that's your neck of the woods. Neil Clay, Bell, Laurel, Whitley, Harlan, Knox, and Rock Castle County are now referring to their, their self as the Appalachian Triangle. Tourism funds from the state, quite a considerable amount of funding. Also, the ARC awarded $5.2 to create workforce and business opportunities across seven Appalachian states with their ARISE grant. They awarded $4.7 to the Education Alliance, which will support a new project to mentor, train, and prepare underserved high school students in West Virginia and Mississippi for careers in manufacturing and healthcare. Also, the 490000 of that ARISE grant went to Virginia Tech, which will support a planning project seeking to grow forest farming business ventures and the non-timber forest products supply chain across Virginia, Kentucky, Maryland, North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. So I think that's a pretty big deal for all those states getting half a million, 490,000 from the Arise grant. Uh, another small piece of news. We've had some people on here from Appalachian State before, some students and professors. They are starting to begin building what they're referring to as an innovation district. The Conservatory for Biodiversity Education and Research will be the first net zero building of this innovation district. And this summer, they will be building that. They just broke ground. I wanted to mention that. It's actually a big deal, not only for the university, but for that area there in Boone, North Carolina. So we'll post a lot about that. There's some several other projects that are going to be part of this $60 million investment in innovation. 
in and of that area. It'll be for multifamily housing, some zero carbon district energy systems, spaces for research, workspaces, renewable energy labs, conference rooms. So it's a pretty big deal for that area. We'll, we'll post it in the show notes. One last piece of news I wanted to mention before we get on to our guest, because it's in reference to our guest, the Appalachian Media Institute. I wanted to talk about a little bit. It's through the Apple Shop. It's an intern program for youth in that part of central Appalachia, that part of eastern Kentucky. They go for this experience, the Summer Documentary Institute, over the summer uh, to participate in this programming to build media outlets, build media experts or interns to get the youth interested in this type of media. I just wanted to mention that their showcase is Friday, July 14th, where the interns that have been doing the work with Apple Shops Roadside Theater to produce a short play to present to the community. So they'll be having their showcase if you're in the area, Friday, July 14th, check it out. It's really an extraordinary pro- program that's been going on for decades there at Apple Shop. And if you're not familiar with Apple Shop, we'll post it in the show notes as well. I know we'll talk about it with our upcoming guest. He used to be the president of Apple Shop, Mr. D. Davis. I wanted to mention that, Neil, because you're familiar with Apple Shop, but I don't know if you had ever met or uh, D before. I have not. I'm looking forward to this conversation, though. It should be should be really interesting. A guy with you know years and years of experience that knows more than we'll ever know about uh, media. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. He's obviously, like you said, decades of experience in multimedia, especially radio and television. Just to hear from him about the different aspects of media, how it's important for Appalachia, how historically it. Appalachia has been portrayed through the media. Just to dive in a little deeper with D, uh, with his experience with Apple Shop, but also he he now runs the Center for Rural Strategies. Without further ado, you want to get him on here? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, on the episode today, we have a special guest. Davis. He's the founder and president of the Center for Rural Strategies, but he began his career at Apple Shop, which is an arts and cultural center dedicated to exploring Appalachian life and social issues. As executive producer there, he launched initiatives that used media as their strategic tool in organization and development. He sits on numerous boards dedicated to the arts, to community development and multimedia, to include the chair of Rural Assembly. He's a legend in Central Appalachia in regards to development, media, and the arts, and we're honored and privileged to have him on the show today. So, Dee, welcome. It's good to be here. Uh, One slight correction, I think I started my career delivering furniture for my dad at Hazard Furniture (laughs) Company, but... (laughs) Well, you do not put that in your bio, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's certainly more uh, formative than a lot of the other stuff that's in there. I don't, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt it at all. Uh, Dee, we, we wanted to ask you a question, something that we ask everyone. As traditions are important for Appalachians, traditions and history are important for my, our family as well. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. 
we have this big spread of appetizers before we actually have a meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer, just holiday dish? You know, somewhere in my family, they started bringing in copious amounts of shrimp. And that's always been like, you know, holiday gatherings. It's not necessarily my uh, go-to, but I, I notice um, it's there a lot. We sometimes bring in salmon from West Coast or sometimes and, and uh, bring a little crab or bring these um, smoked fins or wings or collars they're called and that's my favorite thing in the world it's like the best food ever are these uh these smoked salmon collars nice we have an uncle that's known to bring the shrimp to, to all the family get-togethers that, that that's always on the table you think about these things now that i have grandchildren i've got these uh twin four-year-olds and uh a six-year-old is about to turn seven and I was thinking about what my grandparents used to serve, but there was a time before we would have uh, spaghetti. <laughs> I always would have these uh, saltines, like zesta saltines, and my grandmother would butter them and put sugar on them. And that was like, you know, that was the go-to hors d'oeuvre for uh, a, a three-year-old. I'd say it was the best thing ever. Now that we have that question out of the way, I, I mentioned Apple Shop in the intro. You know, it's well known for its media impact in the mountains, which has grown significantly since it started. Now it operates a radio station, a theater, a public art gallery, a record label, an archive, a filmmaking institute, reproductive justice center program, a community development program, and new, numerous other initiatives. Uh, can you just Talk about Apple Shop, maybe just how it got started, how you got interested in media and storytelling, what led you to Apple Shop, maybe? There was a, a program, a, a kind of great society program called Community Film Workshops of America, I think what the name was. And, and they foresaw this burgeoning film and television industry, and they were afraid that there were a lot of communities, particularly minority communities, who weren't going to get to participate. So they they put them in inner city, New York and Chicago, and they put one on the Indian Reservation, New Mexico, and Latino centers. And, and then a guy who became a good friend of mine, Jack Willis, made a film called Appalachia Rich Land Poor People, which is a classic film, a great, great film. He made this in 1968. It was after Hugh O'Connor had been shot making the uh, the piece for the hemisphere in San Antonio. And, and uh, he had a cameraman, Dick Pierce, who later became a Hollywood director who got beat up. And he thought it was important to have local groups with cameras and that the same concept, he was on the community film workshop board. He thought that concept was important. So he pushed the group to put one of the centers in this mostly white community in Eastern Kentucky. They first tried to do it in Pikeville, but they just had the anti-sedition kerfuffle over there and, and Pikeville didn't want Apple Shop. So uh, a local architect who had made a film, a Yale architect, who was down doing low-income housing. And so he was, he was picked to 
run at Bill Richardson. And they were able to get the local cap agency, um, this guy named Jesse Amberger. He told me so many times he's a guy who started Apple Shop. So I, I, I should rec- recognize him. He was kind of a local bureaucrat and librarian. And anyway, they created a system so federal money could actually come into the region for this community film workshop of Appalachia. And that's how it got started. And it was originally a training center. The young people who were being trained rejected the idea of having one more pipeline of people coming from Appalachia and then going somewhere else to get work. So they quickly turned it into both the training and production center, which is still, I mean, the community film workshop of Chicago is still around. It's been training with the idea of being that people could get work in Chicago. But the idea of Apple Shop would soon be a place that people could not just learn their skills, but also try to create an economy around their their knowledge. And so it started there. And then what we used to call the Great Great Leap Forward when June Apple Records and Roadside Theater and Mount Review Magazine and a bunch of other things, other people in the area, you know, they might be living in Virginia or Tennessee, but they would come into the area with this idea. And so that was the expansion. There are lots of different schemes and scams to get money, you know, educational money, production money, over the years, but that that started and and so though it began in 69, by 75 it was kind of going full bore. And then by the time I started out as a trainee and, and then uh, for filmmaking, then I was a, a bad actor and then I worked for the magazine. And then after I had failed in several different jobs there, I got hired back as the president of Apple Shop in 1978 at the ripe age of 27. I remember being introduced by people who worked there. He's the president. That doesn't mean anything. So I got to do that. And it was great fun because I got to, we get, we made a lot of good stuff and I got to see the world and talk to a lot of people. They always say like um, an NBA coach can last until everybody's heard all his stories. I think I lasted for a long time, but there came a day when everybody heard all my stories. And so in 2001, uh, we started Center for Rural Strategies to really deal with policy issues, communication around policy, things like that. We've done some documentaries, but it's not our our prime uh, reason for existence. And so uh, we've done that. But I was just thinking not that long ago, it's like one of those things you, you realize when you're on the pot, like Martin Luther and transubstation of, of uh, souls is like I worked here now at Rural Strategies about the same length the time I worked at Apple Shop though I, I refer to a lot of those same old stories that uh, wore people out the first time you know from what we did in media production. You know we're at a time when local news especially print uh, local news organizations are closing especially in small rural communities yet the way we get our news in general, there's more outlets now than ever, whether it be formal news or not. How, how have you seen media change over the years 
you know, since you've worked at Apple Shop, since you've now started the center? And has it changed for better or for worse? It's wacky. You know, I mean, first of all, I'm old, so I've seen a lot of things, right? And I don't know, you, n- you never really are sure what was seminal or what was uh, the important pivot point uh, here or there. But, you know, I grew up when a lot of people had a career journal on their breakfast table every morning. And then the daily newspapers, the Lexington Herald and the Courier were competing. And then all of a sudden, you know, there came a, a day where the local reporters weren't around anymore and the, and the daily papers weren't around anymore. They retreated to their suburban hubs and where people were better off. And, and there were, they created a lot of gaps in rural news coverage that were kind of filled by church bulletins and little Christian radio stations by Facebook. And, you know, substantially that information is not curated. And I would say it's often worse and often misinformation, but also it's a great chance to catch up with your, you know, your high school pals and stuff. The other thing that's different is in this whole cycle of how Appalachia has been seen in the media, like the first best selling novels were about Appalachia. So, you know, uh, Trail of Lonesome Pine and Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come were the first best selling novels in the U.S. And so they held up this image of these uh, great examples of pioneer spirit and heroism. And then uh, there was also competing views to see Appalachians as poor and unable to take care of their own resources. And so, there, you know, you can see that in New York Times editorials that say that Appalachian Mountain people need to assimilate or be annihilated. It's kind of crazy stuff. You've got, you know, the president of Berea College calling Appalachians our contemporary ancestors so that, you know, again, there are these this enclave of white people who need to be uh, lifted up. And so, you know, different people have used Appalachians as they wanted to. And then, of course, we all grew up with the hillbilly stereotypes of Beverly Hillbillies and people kind of looking down. And now in in more recent years, and and I don't know, I feel like in some ways, Appleshop might have had a bit of a hand in this too, is lifting up. Uh, the nobility of just people getting by and doing good and making chairs and quilts and looking after each other. And all of a sudden, it seems like now people want to be Appalachian. When I was growing up, nobody wanted to be Hillbilly. Nobody wanted to be Appalachian. Now it seems like more and more. It's like, yeah, it's not, you know, I would we would have thought it's moss to the flame, but I think more and more people take some pride in that heritage and and they and instead of uh shrinking the map of uh Appalachia it seems like people are trying to expand it so I don't know it changes a lot and people who live here I think sometimes you get tired of all that 
granny stack cake kind of stuff, you know, of that romanticizing the life because it's not, it's not all peaches and cream, right? You, you know, it's people have gone through a lot, work keeps disappearing, and you know, they when they dumped all the oxycontin in here, it really harmed us culturally. It it, it did a lot of damage, you know. But people who've endured, people who've stuck around, I think, have done it for a purpose and 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 appreciate getting to uh, hang out and tell stories and listen to other people tell stories and uh, appreciate that maybe uh, everything's not always hunky-dory, but it's not the worst place. You've worked and traveled all over the U.S., all over the world. I even saw that you sit on the board in Australia. We've learned from doing this podcast, there are many more similarities than there are differences with Appalachia and other regions throughout the U.S., throughout the world. Have you seen that same perspective in your in your work and your travels? I did this interview on the radio when, when over at Apple Shop WMMT once, and uh, and there was this guy who kept telling that I think it was like in the year two thousand three there was going to be all these spaceships were going to align and they were all going to come down in like La Jolla, California, and they were going to have create a some kind of antenna and everybody would be talk to and everybody would be able to understand. So I would always ask him, you know, like, what are women like in outer space? And, you know, what kind of, you know, do people drive pickup trucks on different planets and stuff like that, you know, just uh, enjoying with him. But finally I got him to say, well, women are women uh, all, all over. And I think in some way people, people all over, whether it's uh, what part of the world, I, I feel like, you know, you got to, figure out how to look after your elders, feed your family, make a place for yourself and uh, be a good member of a community. And I don't think that that's, that's so different anywhere. And that's certainly, you know, it's the true in the cities as it is in the country. And I, I think we might do it different, but, you know, people are people. You mentioned, you know, the local news, the news reporters moving to the suburbs, but Center for Rural Strategies, you you all have started, you operate the Daily Yonder, but also the Rural Assembly, which I want to ask about. But I, but you also just started uh, recently the Rural Newswires. Just what exactly is that? What's the significance of it? And how important is local news to the communities, especially in rural Appalachia communities? Like local papers are important. And in this country, I think weekly papers carry a huge burden for rural communities because the dailies aren't there so much anymore and unless, you know, something really bad happens. And, and so weekly papers are important and how they get their news is important and they're mostly interested in things that are significant in their own county base. So uh, one of the things we've just uh, done is a collaboration with the climate publication, Chris. There's so much of what's going on on the planet, you know, with weather changes and that are affecting huge, affecting rural areas, but the Reporting is often about 
how it affects urban areas. And so, so we thought it would be good to create a collaborative new service where local papers and outlets could get a variety of stories about what's happening, particularly creating solutions in rural areas, you know, how in water resources and uh, solar resources and how we deal with fossil fuels. Often that's a really um, affects rural communities in ways that are different from the consumers in urban areas. So we thought we'd be helpful to do that. And then we've done different things with the Daily Yonder trying to get reporting located in a weekly paper. So I don't know, it's, it just seems like a good place to go. And it's a different model uh, than, you know, urban hubs or regional yeah. papers. The, the Royal Assembly is also a collaboration amongst numerous organizations. It also has its own podcast. Uh, yeah, Whitney Kimball Cole is the person who directs this, and she's she's had this vision of a way for for people who are trying to change their their communities to have allies cross sectoral. Right, it's not just educators and not just health and not just investment and not just broadband, but people working across these different sectors together. And and then they get together to talk about policy or to talk about things like earned income tax credits or, you know, or to talk about, you know, a recipe for vinegar pie. You know, it's a way to create a kind of community discourse that goes to some of the like-minded people from from different rural communities can take part. ARC just released its chart book that talks about the distressed counties and how a lot of the counties that were distressed are in central Appalachia, and they've been distressed since the beginning of the ARC. Do you think the region is becoming more prosperous or, or getting better, or is it getting worse? So it's hard to do county by county measurements for lots of things because the size of the counties and, and different ones. And, and particularly in Kentucky, the Appalachian counties have been distressed. They're smaller counties than in Virginia and West Virginia. But a lot of, of those communities that have had to deal with declining coal markets and uh, certainly de- declining Appalachian coal markets for years have seen just a plummeting of employment. And so you have all the indicators about distress. I mean, my congressional district here, the fifth of Kentucky is kind of perpetually the poorest or the next to poorest congressional district in the United States. I think we've been swapping back and forth with the South Bronx community. And then the health indicators we're worse or the next to the worst switching back and forth with I think Fresno and in California. But it's it's interesting that, you know, life expectancy is the shortest tier of um of any congressional district in the United States. And and um, I always told my wife that I would outlive her and I would go back to uh, my home county and, and, and find some marry some widow, but but it turns out that my home county has the 
that the women are the shortest lived. And so uh, that's not going to work. I'm just going to have to hope, hope that she hangs on. Now, I mean, the reality is it's a bleak picture, but it's not. I mean, people aren't pitiful. You know, they're dealing with it. And what has given the economies the boost in the past is not what's going to give the economies a boost in the future. That the reality of a lot of rural communities is that with gig work and with different settlement patterns, there's going to be more and more opportunities for rural communities like ours. And the most important thing is not to go chasing after the past and try to, oh, we're going to bring back the widget industry or the coal industry or, or whatever we're going to bring back, but to think about where, you, where we're going to place ourselves in the, in the future. Because I think the most important thing for rural communities is to create a place you want to live in. You've got decent health care and decent schools and some bandwidth to bring your goods and services to market that the reality in 10, 20 years, a lot of what we thought of as traditional employment will be will have disappeared. And it won't just be true for country places, it'll be true in the cities too. You know, with AI, you know, do you, how are we going to, are we going to need lawyers and engineers the same way we used to? The most important thing for us is just make a good town and make it welcoming and don't be a turd, you know, just, yeah. just make a good town. Might be the quote of the day right there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell my kids that all the time. You mentioned the extractive, the historically extractive economies that have been part of Appalachia. But media has also been very extractive to Appalachia, you know, making a narrative fit a story based on perception rather than realities. But you also talked about the positive aspects of Appalachia. You think it's important for media to talk about the diversity in Appalachia, talk about the positives in Appalachia? We can take it. You know, I think we're all there's been generations, you know, decades and decades of of different manipulations of of the hillbilly image that sometimes smart, but I think we can handle the truth, right? I don't I don't feel so precious or that everybody has to kiss my tail of, you know, when they talk about Appalachia. I think we can deal with the realities of our economy, the realities of health or even addiction as long as people put it in context and that there's some effort to tell a true story, you know, I think the, the reality is that that being fluffed up into something you're not has the same kind of downside as being laughed at and made fun of for something you're not. I know you're born and raised, obviously, in eastern Kentucky, and that's part of the country that basketball is keen. And, and we hear that you were quite the ball player back in the day as well. So in my mind, in my mind, I played probably more pickup basketball. You know, I, I, I played till I was so old, you know, well, I, I'll go down there. Uh, like there was a pickup game behind the church here and I would hold court or win games, you know, against people who were definitely better than me, but I played to the point where it was like 
you know, you guard the girl. You know, I, I got to the place where where the guys who I let play when they were in the eighth grade, you know, they were they were there protecting me, uh, making sure that I, uh, I got to hang out with him. So I I love uh, I love basketball and and uh, it's kind of the one thing that people who you don't get along with, you can always kind of come back and chat about to that point i wanted to ask you then what's your all-time starting five uk basketball the five that would give me the most joy the point guard would be larry johnson he he played he kind of came on when i was in school and i never saw the like of it they said that you know he could dribble up the stairs between his legs he he was so fast i loved what i just loved watching him play there's a bunch of of players like like that that I just had such joy getting to getting to see them. I loved Fox and I and I loved Knight. Those those guys gave me uh, great joy. I you know I don't know how many point guards you can you can have on a team, but that's right. But my favorite player when I was in school was Mike Pratt and and. Um, he, he he was a power forward that was too you know he had to play guard in uh, pro ball but i i loved uh, watching him play and and he would shoot these bank shots from the side and i would i would stand up as soon as he sh- shot them cuz i knew they were going in and then there were a lot of uh, great big men but anthony davis was a kind of a cut above like cream comes to the top there yeah, hey, that, that's a good mix of old and young there. That's a that's a good five. Here's what I bet nobody else will come up with that five. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a unique one. Let me ask you this: This is a preference question. Would you prefer to watch a game, UK game, with all the sound, or would you prefer to watch it with the volume off with Kay Wood Ledford on the radio in the background? You know, it's kind of who you're watching it with. Because if you're cracking wives with a bunch of friends. You got some beers, then you can be smart, Alec, when the guys are saying stuff that, you know, the Vitals and Billises and, you know, as they uh, reach for the painfully obvious. But uh, I grew up, you know, when I I grew up, there were both Kaywood, uh, Ledford and Claude Sullivan. I don't know how they did it. But I think they were both calling the UK games at different times or I remember growing up listening to Reds games when you could walk down the streets and and uh, hazard in the summer and everybody be out on their porch, no air conditioning. Of course, they would just be out listening to the Reds games and you could keep up with the scores, you That's know, <laughs> right? And, and so um, that was a different era when that was a huge uh, radio network and uh, uh, and in a way, uh, baseball lends itself to to that because you can all the storytelling in between pitches. But it's hard, it's hard to find an announcer who uh, knows as much as uh, me or my pals watching the game. We we are sure that we know more and uh, I know more than my pals. They don't realize that. (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask about that history. So with all that history, UK ball history, 
Are you a fan of one and dones? And do you think we have a shot at the championship this year? I always, I always feel like it, even in the years that we were on probation. You know, I've always, that's the one place where uh, I'm always hopeful no matter what. I went to, my brother and I went down to uh, Greensboro to watch first game in the tournament. I was pretty sure that we were going to win it. I know we were going to win the COVID year. I, I would feel like, I would say right now, it's ours to win. Uh, so you feel like your bracket, UK is always, always winning it. You always fill it out with your heart. Exactly. It's like uh, there are other things that I can be a realist about, but I don't have to be a realist. About that. <laughs> there you go. Right. I totally agree. Cornbread or biscuits? This will sound like I'm bragging, but I do make the best cornbread in the world. I've I worked <laughs> off a recipe that watching my grandmother make it with mayonnaise and I don't make it with mayonnaise, but I've got a, a cornbread that my kids and I figured out and uh, you can just ask anybody. It's the best. Secret recipe? Yeah, it's a secret, but I'll share it with you. <laughs> I just had somebody uh, videotape me making it. So I'll, I'll send you the link. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word Appalachia? Well, you know, now uh, it's funny. Growing up, it was not you. It was, it was more negative or it was it wasn't used so much. But I got to spend a lot of time with James Still, who I guess is considered the dean of Appalachian writers. And, and uh, I got to hang out with him and talk. And he always said Appalachian. And I was like, here's the guy who was the, uh, you know, he he wrote River of Earth, I guess, in the 30s, and and who his uh, his poetry like Leap Minnow's Leap or uh, Heritage, you know, those poems are are kind of emblazoned in my on my heart, and I think in you know all the Appalachian studies literature, and it didn't matter to him. He just said, well, you know, Appalachian literature is just a subset of Southern literature. Those kinds of uh, distinctions didn't matter as much to him. But now, I, you know, I would say my kids, you know, everybody, it's really important. And I always just thought it was because we were close to Appalachia, Virginia, and that's the way they ca- called it. And, you know, that that's, that's how. But so now I think about the pronunciation more than I think about the place. But when I think of the place, I, I guess I, I just think about the old timers I got to hang with and, you know, the, the guys who I delivered furniture with and the, when I was doing social work, the people I met in these different communities. I was thinking the other day of a, a guy named Noisy Hayes who ran the, the Union Hall in Alloc outside of Vico. And I was like, and all the time that they spent with me, being tolerant of my stupidity, being kind to me, even when I knew it all. You know, I think in some ways that I have a particular fondness for all those old people who were patient with me. And I think about that a lot now when I think about Appalachia. I, drove, I was driving through Vico uh, the other day and, and this huge shadow came across and I, and I, I saw this bald eagle come, you know, put the shadow across my car and across the road. And it was coming right out of Alloc where noisy used to be. And I, and I thought it was such a good gift 
because I hadn't thought about noisy in a long time and I hadn't really thought about Alloc. And all of a sudden I was just flooded with um, happy and sustaining memories of all the joking and kidding and kindness. So, yeah, I think as a guy, I, yesterday I turned 72, so I, I'm beginning to think uh, differently than I did when I was 22. We ground our podcast on place in perspective. Just to that point, just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? You know, I always thought uh, Hazard was home because, uh, you know, my nephews continued to go to high school there. And it, it always made me feel like um, I, I could be smug about living in Whitesburg because I was really from Hazard, you know, in a way. And uh, now that I've traveled everywhere, the the edges around what's home and are different. You know, I think I have a lot of friends who moved off. And when we talk, we talk about home, you know, they may be in different parts of the world now, but, it, you know, there's a kind of um, a shared camaraderie that's not, about your locale, your vicinity at the moment, but more about the way you tell stories and who you remember. And and I think I've, I've come to appreciate that. I, I want to ask you this last question, Dave. Th- thanks for the time uh, that you spent with us. Uh, because of your, uh, obviously, the Center for Rural Strategies, the work that you do there in regards to media, in regards to development, but w- what do you see as the future for media and the impact it can have on on the region? You know, we, we're living in an age where the most important thing is just to be an honest broker, that that so much of the information we get is weak or false. And I think that what's the most important thing is to emerge is, is tell the best truth you can, be as candid about where you're coming from, and you know, do your best to be an honest broker that in the end, in a world where we get just inundated all the time with news and information that we need people we can trust. And so I think that's the most important thing is to do your best not to chisel veritas on a wall, but just to do the best to tell the truth. Good ending. Well said. I I, want to thank you again for, for taking the time to chat with us today. Okay. Well, it's nice talking to you guys. Nice talking to you. Okay, Neil, we'll see you, buddy. Neil, great conversation with Dee. I appreciate his time that he spent with us. Obviously, he's a man of the mountains. He might have left for college but he never left the area even in all the work that he's done not only the over the u.s but throughout the world wealth of knowledge there will obviously so uh when it comes to rural journalism they're not a better person to have on so i, I was i was enjoying these stories he's a he's a great storyteller so uh always a pleasure to have somebody like like him on on our show yeah definitely a prolific storyteller like we said in the intro, you know, the the historical perspective that media has portrayed on Appalachia, almost trying to fill a narrative before they're even on the ground trying to 
get a story. Um, it was good to hear from him, his perspective on that and how it's changed over his course of time in the media field. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to get to how in the world he ended up on a board of directors in, from uh, in Australia. Next time we visit, I'm, I'm definitely going to get that question in. But uh, what a unique personality, unique person, and uh, obviously a big basketball fan, too, as you heard there. Had a unique starting all-time starting five that no one else will, will top, for sure. What did you think about that starting five? I like the fact that he mentioned it was for joy. Yeah, I like that too. I mean, you can definitely see that in all the guys that he mentioned. So that's a great way to look at it. I'm not so sure that uh, every position would would be what I would have chosen or the player that I would have chosen. But from his perspective, when you're looking for guys to bring out the joy, that had been a fun team to be on, I can tell you that. But when I'm thinking of my starting five, I don't think I can have a UK starting five without putting the monster mash for me, that that he's just the epitome uh, of of Kentucky basketball. Him and and Jim Masters. You know he's my favorite. <laughs> I, don't, I agree with that one. I'll give you Monster Mash, but uh, <laughs> I can't get on the, the Masters trail. But anyway, did, did you happen to have a business of the week for us to highlight today, Will? Other than highlighting these most recent work uh, at the Center for Rural Strategies. Maybe there's another business in eastern Kentucky or somewhere in Appalachia that that we can highlight. You know, Wattsburg is a space in eastern Kentucky that's, you know, it's not going to pop up on the map when you look for places to visit, but there's lots of unique businesses there and special opportunities there that are really kind of hidden in the deep woods. While we're on the subject of Wattsburg, Will, you might as well we might as well point out the Mountain Eagle over there, the long-standing paper. Um, since we're talking about this whole episode about media and local media, and I guess given the the person that we interviewed and his ties to to there, give the give a shout out to the the Mountain Eagle over there who covers everything Wattsburg, everything Letcher County. Great publication has been around for years, and you can also check it out online, themountaineagle.com. So there's a couple of businesses related to Wattsburg. Wattsburg's kind of, a, like I mentioned, a hidden area of eastern Kentucky that uh, has all, t- all sorts of local businesses. Well, thanks for that, Neil. Thanks for that app biz of the week. The shout out to the Mountain Eagle, the importance of local news for local communities. I wanted to thank D again for being on the episode, for talking about his experience in the media landscape in Appalachia. Yes, sir. Shout out to D again. I guess we can end it like we usually do, Neil, until next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong In the mountains again